Our Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads before you, we bow our heads before you who are the authority, who are God, who are the creator God, who beside whom there is no other God. And we worship you and we serve you because Christ has been shed apart in, uh, abundantly in our hearts and his atoning work has atoned for our sins so that we are now born again and we're now children of God, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And so as your children, as your gathered body, Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would use this message and these faltering words to reach those parts of our hearts that you need to be opened, that you want to be opened, that we need opened so that we may continue our growth and development and you continue finding new ways to serve you and to serve your body, both here in Cornerstone and around the world. Grant us these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you may want to open with me, please, to Ephesians. It's in the New Testament, toward the back of the book, um, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, Acts, and Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. Yeah, Ephesians. There you go. For a minute there, I'm in blank. You'll find it there. In my Bible, it's page 17, uh, 1718. I'm not quite sure where it is in yours. And if you would stand with me, please, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 to honor the Word of God. Stand with me, please. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to be adoption, to, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intentions which he proposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the pur his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, have, uh, have also believed you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Let me have a seat, please. I want to introduce you to the story of Ruth and Ariello. They are Christians serving the body of Christ, serving the Lord Jesus Christ, doing evangelism, and church planting in, in um, South Mexico, uh, from south of Mexico City to through to the Yucatan Peninsula, that portion of Mexico. 
they, um, Christians in that area are uh, opposed by a number of different factions. There are the drug and the crime cartels, um, which recruit people throughout the region for their uh, illegal activities and for prostitution. There are the Zapatists. They are a quasi-Marxist revolutionary organization fighting the local and the federal government of Mexico. They're the uh, animist. They're primitive pagan religions still exist in that portion, to a large portion of Mexico, but predominantly in that southern Mexico region. Uh, adhering to those old ways, witches, um, um, sages, uh, spells, incantations, worshiping animals and spirits. And then there's the synchronistic Catholic pagan religion. When the Catholics came into that portion of Mexico, they saw the people heavily involved in, this, in the animistic religion, so to make it more compatible for them to receive, uh, to be Catholics, to join the Catholic Church, they synchronized, they combined some aspects of the pagan religions with some aspects of Christianity, um, which is what they tended to do when they go into a new country. I saw it firsthand when I was in Brazil years ago, uh, how it works. Um, but they are very much opposed to even, all these groups are opposed to evangelical Christians in that area. Normally, though, persecution comes from the community or the small villages where these Christians live because nobody wants them there. They don't want them there. All these other groups are against them. They tend to be, they, send, they receive threats, both written, uh, spray painted on their houses, spray painted on their cars, um, you know, with skull and crossbones, stop what you're doing or leave or those kinds of things. Their tires, tires are slashed. Their uh, property is destroyed or confiscated. Their houses are sometimes burned down. Their land is confiscated uh, sometimes. Water and electricity is cut off on a routine basis. Bank accounts are hacked. Uh, they're ridiculed at school and at work. The children sometimes even refused education. They are barred from their villages. And sometimes they lose their Mexican citizenship because the local officials destroy their records. That's the normal way of persecution, it mostly occurs. Ruth, one of the people we're going to be, uh, I want to introduce you to, has been a Christian for ever since she can remember. Her father was a pastor in several of these small areas, and he would visit about three or four of these churches on a Sunday and distribute Bibles, as, and he purchased them on his own, so he couldn't afford to distribute a whole lot on a routine basis. Ruth developed a ministry to younger children and was very, very successful in these little villages, and so that's what she began to do, accompanying her father on these little mission trips and do children's ministries as she went. Uh, some years down the road, she met Ariello, who was a single parent. His wife had died with two young children. They got married in 2013 and established a very successful ministry of evangelism, children's ministry, church planting, <clears throat> and Bible distribution. Um, on, in June of 2017, while they were coming home after having collected from the Voice of the Martyrs a large shipment of Bibles, about 500, they were accosted on the road to their home by masked armed men, separated and put in two different vehicles, and uh, Ariello was beaten to unconsciousness. Uh, on the way to whatever destination they were going, Ruth and her um, stepdaughter, uh, jumped out of the vehicle to escape. They were soon captured, bound, and driven to a, a location. Ariala was dragged out of the car, and they were forced to march down into this hill, into this valley, where there were questions. What's in these boxes? What are you doing? Who are you working for? Who are you meeting? 
And her response was, we're pastors. These are Bibles. This is the Word of God. This is what we do. This is how we make our living. This, this is what we do with, before Christ. Part of the interrogation, they were, all three of them were doused with gasoline. Um, and they were told to stop what you're doing and, or, because you're going to die today anyway. So Ruth began to pray, very simple prayer. Lord, give me the strength to go to endure this, and the strength that only comes from you. Um, at some point, a gun was placed in Ruth's head. And the trigger was pulled, but it didn't fire. The gun had jammed. So they just decided to light the gasoline. So they started to strike the matches. The matches wouldn't light. She remembers hearing the people going, what's wrong with these people? We can't kill them. What's the matter? We, boy, the boss is going to be upset if we can't do this. So we've got to decide what to do. So they were talking among themselves. They finally decided we're just going to leave. Now, would you stop what you're doing and don't do this anymore. Don't tell the police because we know who you are. We know what you're doing. We know where your, where your families are and we know where you live. Um, needless to say, these, this event, Ariala was... Um, um, Unconscious uh, concussions, massive concussions, cuts on his head, taken to the hospital. They took him to the hospital, or uh, Ruth finally got help. Took him to the hospital. He, he's okay. He survived, but the trauma was severe. It took them months to get over this trauma. Um, the voice of martyrs, the voice of the martyrs, at one point offered to relocate them to a safer area. Um, let me read you, you know, because of their own security, they know that they were, uh, everybody was. They knew who they were, what they were doing, and everybody was looking out for them. Everybody was watching them. This is Ruth's response. The Lord put me here, Ruth said. I wasn't going to run away. This was a battle we had to go through. God was going to do it God's way. We decided God doesn't want us to leave this place. And Ariello said, yes, we're going to double our preaching now. As a result of that, their ministry began to increase. So they wound up planting, at this, to this point, about 500 churches. They established about 50 outreach centers, places where you can, young people can come, children can come. They can be taught the Word of God. They have little activities for them, and there's food provided for them. Um, Ruth said that we found that, that if the children come, and the parents know they're there and are agreed to have them, for them to go, then about 90% of those families, the whole families, will become Christian. They've also begun to set up temporary shelters. A lot of the persecuted Christians, when their lands are confiscated, or their houses are burned down, or their jobs are taken away, they can't find employment. They go to these um, uh, temporary shelters that Ruth and Oriello have set up, where they can get some security, get away from the chaos. They can be fed, they can uh, learn the Word of God, and they can get some job training. Um, Ruth says, I know they're looking for us. We're in th their crosshairs. We haven't stopped. We will continue. Whatever God wants us to do, we will do. God is so good. He called me and is bringing me all the resources to do ministry. It has often been a hard process. God always strengthens me. God is the one who's doing this. Children's lives have been transformed. And by that, the parents' lives are transformed. All for the glory of Jesus. This is a story of courage uh, and strength and faith and perseverance in the face of severe trials, things that most of us have never experienced. How do they do that? How do they survive that? 
How do they get through? What makes them want to continue and not leave and find a safe place or modify their ministry or change what they're doing or alter how they're doing it so that they'll be left alone? What gives them the strength to stay? Well, let's ask, what would, give, what would we do, Cornerstone, if we were run off the road by masked armed men? How would we respond if we were told to shut up and stop what you're doing? We know who you are and we know where you live. How will we respond when there are protesters outside the church and they follow you to your home and they scream and yell and show banners and throw eggs and spray paint your house and, and curse at you and threaten you and your family? How will you respond? What will you do? It's a pertinent question because as Bronson has been so loudly proclaiming to us, and I believe it's true, it's true we're in for a period of of persecution. But in, to answer that question, let's look at a little bit, a question that's a little bit easier to answer. A question that's closer to home. So we're, we're, we're asking this big question of how do we stand when persecution comes? How do we be as brave as Ruth and her family? So in order to answer that question, we're going to ask a smaller question. And that question is, what are you doing with your money? If you were to look at my bank account, my records, which are pathetic enough in themselves, but if you were to look at them, could you tell that I was a disciple of Christ? You know, would there be enough evidence there to convict me in a court that you were a Christian? What about your calendar? How you spend your time and your efforts and your resources and how you schedule your, what's going on throughout the week or the month or the year in your life? Could I look at your calendar? Could you look at my calendar and say, this person is a Christian? Because how we spend our money and how we spend our time and how we use our resources has everything to do with if your discipleship in Christ, you're serving Christ. Wait, 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 wait. What does that have to do with persecution? Everything. You see, the big decisions... When the pressure comes and the lions are at the gates, the big decisions that we have to make are set up, are schooled, are trained in the small everyday decisions that we make in living the Christian life. This, the answers that you give here, the way you live your life here, is not going to be different from here. It's the same answers. So, Instead of saying, well, you know, by, you know, praise the Lord, and praise the Lord, praise the Lord that um, we don't have persecution when it comes, the Holy Spirit will teach me. And just, let's just go about our way. So here it is, the lions are at the, day, the gate, they're, they're battering in your house, you're being arrested for hate crimes and hate speech, and what do you do? Your mind goes blank. All you know is terror and fear and insecurity and Lord help us. That's all you know. And how do you make a decision? How do you stand for Christ? The exact same way you stand for Christ when you're writing your checks, when you're making your calendar, when you're deciding, how do I love my wife when I could choke her to death right now? 
How do I love these bratty kids who are driving me insane? How do I be a father or a mother or a child? How do I obey my parents when I think they're totally out of touch with any kind of reality? How do you do that? Those are the decisions that set you up for this. Without these decisions, you have properly made under the authority of Christ. You have no basis. When you're caught, you're caught. And those decisions are affected by what you value. What is, what is important to you is how the pool of information that you have to make these decisions. Uh, if you value what the Word of God says, then your decisions will come from the Word of God. If you value what you think about yourself and what you want to be, to be true about yourself, what your hope is true about yourself, then that's out of which your decisions are going to be made. And what you value is determined by answer to the question that we're going to consider today, who am I? Wait, what? Yes. The answer that you have for that question determines what you value. Who you are is a direct, or what you value is a direct consequence of your answer to that question. Who am I? And what you value makes your, makes your, as the pool of which your, your decisions are made for these little mundane things. How do you spend your day? What do you do? How do you get up? Are you gripey? Are you happy? How do you love your wife? How do you love your kids? How do you be a big, good boss or a good employee? All those little decisions, and that is going to be the same way you're going to make decisions here. So we want to look at a couple of things. We want to look at this question, who am I? Now, I know a lot of you have already settled that in your, in your heads years ago. Young people, you're in the process that you're looking for. That's what you're doing. You're forming this idea of who am I? I am an athlete, I am a student, I'm a good math student, I'm a bad math student, um, I'm a, a, a better science student, I'm not too good of a science, but I'm a good history student. I'm an athlete, I'm not an athlete, I play video games, I don't play video games. That's, that's all that's going into this little mechanism that you're building up of your vision and your view of yourself. And out of, it's out of that that I'm going to make the decisions. If I think I'm the baddest thing on the football field, I'm going to step on the football field like I'm the baddest thing there. And you will very soon find out if that's true or not. Then you've got to like, wait a minute here. Something's wrong with this picture. If you think that you're good at math and you take an AP course, you'll very quickly find out that maybe you're not quite as good as you thought you were. Now what do you do? Oh, well, uh, uh, and that's what you're doing right now. You're figuring that out. A lot of us have been through that. We kind of know how that works. But we're also still figuring it out. Who am I? Am I a high school chemistry teacher? Not anymore. That's what I was. What are you now? Now, all of those are little everyday decisions, right? There's little everyday answers to the question, who am I? But there are deeper issues here. There are deeper questions. And the core of my being, who am I? In, 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 in the, in the, if I ought to take you and spread your chest apart and pull your heart out and look at it, you know, metaphorically, you look at it. Who would I see? Who am I in the core of my being? A being uh, Dr. Schaefer used to refer to that as your integration point. What integrates your life? What is the idea or the view that ever, around, around which everything in your life centers? That's your core belief of who you are. 
And that determines what you value, and what you value determines how you make decisions here, and it also make, determines how you make decisions here. So let's just take a real quick look, and we don't have time to go into a lot of this, a little of it, we'll go into it. There are three things here, three views that I want us to look at. Um, adoption, this, the Ephesians says that you're adopted, it says that you're redeemed, and it says that you are um, sealed. It says that you're sealed. So let's just kind of take a look at that. And, this is, and Paul's talking here about who you are in Christ. See, because if you're a Christian, then who you are is determined by who owns you. Correct? If I am owned by God, if I am his possession, if I am his child, if I'm a member of his household, then who, who God says I am is who I am. Uh, if I'm owned by nobody, if I'm on my own, or if I'm owned by some other deity or some other religion or some other facet of, of the world, and, and then, I'm on my, then you're on your own. Then you're free from this. You don't have to worry about it. But if you belong to Christ, the, your core identity has everything to do with who he says you are. And it's out of that core identity that all your decisions are made or not. So if I look at this portion of Ephesians, particularly in verse starting at verse 4, it says, mm, let's see. Yes, let's go back up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So he says, the God of you, that you serve has blessed you. Okay. One thing we can say is that we're the blessed people, no question. Wait a minute, I don't have any money. That's not what he's talking about. I don't have any property. Not what he's talking about. He says, bless you with every spiritual blessing. I, mean, what, I can't put that under the Christmas tree. Well, you know, how am I going to buy that? What am I, I can't wear a, a spiritual blessing. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. Because you see, in God's eyes, there are things that are important and there are things that are less important. And the things that are most important to him is your relationship with him. That's the most important thing to him. Second to that is your relationship with other people, particularly the body of Christ. Those, your family, of course, and then the body of Christ. That's the most important thing. God wants to make human beings, not human... What? Um, compilers, people who gather a whole bunch of stuff. He doesn't want, make, he doesn't want to make human doers who all they are is doing and working. He wants a being, and that being is, are you being in Christ, or are you being in some other realm of, of your life, some other aspect of the world? Where is your being located? Where is your being growing? What's maturing it? What's growing it? If it is Christ, then, what, uh, if you're, then you go to the Scripture, and Scripture says, let me tell you what the most important things are. These spiritual blessings are the most important things. Okay, what are they? Okay, we, if I buy into that, what are they? He starts right here, just as, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So one of the things that he has given you is an understanding that he has chose, chosen you. Notice it says he chose us, and this is Paul writing to the, book, uh, to the, the church at Ephesus. In the church at Ephesus, he's saying, all of you believers in Ephesus, all of you believers in Cornerstone, God has chosen you as a group well, he does choose you as a group, but he is choosing you to be a part of this group individually, specifically, 
purposefully before the foundation of the world. What? Well, let's just go back. Wheel back history all the way to nothing, physically speaking, and there is the Trinity. And God is making his plans, I'm humanly speaking here, so bear with me. God's making his plans for creation. And before there's the word spoken, let there be light, before there's any word spoken, God has understood and planned the course of history from Genesis 1 all the way to November 12th, what's today? 12th, November 12th at 11.20 a.m. Sunday morning. And he's even got the future planned. And he has planned that history from beginning to now. And every step of the way, every step of the way, in the generations from Genesis 1 all the way down to your life right now, so that you are here and now and in this place, with what you have being who you are. Every step. Well, what about everybody else around me? And the same thing for all of us here. So we are gathered here in all of our history, in all of our sins and all of our unbeliefs and all of our beliefs and all of our knowledge and all of our possessions or our lack of possessions and everything that we do or, or, or have. He's planned all of that and this whole group of people he's planned it and all the other Christians and all the other parts of the world but particularly for us so that we are here and now in this place. Why? Because this is where he wants you to be. Because he says, this is the best for you to be here and now in this place. Specifically, uniquely, purposefully. Pretty important, I would say. That's how God views you. That's what he says about you, that you were chosen of me before the foundation of the world. Someone said it like this one time, which I think is a really good little picture. Before the world was created, God had your picture on his wall. But not just who you are now, but all of history, everything that has happened. And for your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, go back as far as you can understand. God is moving in those people's lives, moving the lives of histories and nations and continents and travel and exploration and the nation's rising and falling and ideology is coming and going so that you could be right here right now because you are as his child are to be where he wants you to be and this is it. Cornerstone is as it is because God has led us to this point. You are who you are because God has brought you here in all of the brokenness and all of the hurt and all of the pain and all the trials and all of the victories that you've won through Christ through the years. Here you are. Here we are. To be holy and blameless before him. There's a reason why he chose you. We're not going to have time to go into that, but that's, there's, there are things to us to do. There's a way to believe, okay? So if I am the chosen of God, and you are, and I'm here, then my job is to glorify and uh, to be holy and blameless before him. How does that affect my decisions? Does it? If it doesn't, then we have a few things to question, don't we? 
if it is affecting your decisions, and you and I both know this is going to be not perfect in any stretch of the imagination. You know, we do a thing, we stumble through this thing, we, we try the best we can, that's why we're all here, that's why you're with me and I'm with you, so that you and I can help each other do that. In our chosenness and our specialness and the particularity in which God has called us, and he says, that's who you are, now live that, live the way I'm calling you, be holy and blameless before me. How do you do that with your checkbook? How do you do that with your calendar and your time and your talents? Some of you here in this congregation are really good at that. I envy you. Some of us have a long way to go. In any case, the road is still before us, and there's always a way of growth and development in that. But that's what he expects you to do. And he expects you to make these decisions based upon what he's already said about you. You're the chosen, okay? Verse 5, he predestined us. We don't have time to go into all of those nuances, but that's, he predestined us. The same, in, think of it as the same context in terms of choosing as adoption through his, uh, as sons through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the next big thing, the big thing we're going to look at here, you know, is adoption. You are the adopted ones. Now, if you look at um, the uh, culture at Ephesus, Ephesus was a major city, a new, one of the like New York City of its day. The uh, cult of Diane was there. The temple of Diane was there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the size of a football field. And it was surrounded by 127, I believe, 60-foot-tall marble columns that supported the portico all the way around. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a mega-city. It was a mega-city. It was also the center of um, slave trade, sitting right on the, the Turkey on the eastern coast, Turkey, a GNC, here's the coast of Ephesus is right there. It was a major trade route from the east all the way to, to, uh, uh, to Rome, and it was a major route on the slave trade, very prosperous, very affluent city. And in these, very Roman, of course, Roman culture was a culture of abandonment. Child is born in a Roman culture, and the first thing that happens is after the ch child is uh, birthed and wrapped, is brought before the father and placed at the father's feet. The father either picks the child up, which means that the child is mine, he's a member of this household, we love it, we cherish it, he's a son or a daughter, whatever. Or he's left, father turns away. So the nurses come and wrap the baby up and take the baby to the, the marketplace, or they take the baby to the woods, or they take the baby outside the city and just put the baby down and leave the baby alone. Let the gods take care of the baby because I don't wish to do that. That's the way they kind of justified it, I imagine. Now, can you imagine there, what would happen most of the time? But a lot of times, people would go to the Agora, the marketplace, and look for these abandoned children and take them home for themselves so that they could be raised as slaves, a very cheap way to get a slave. They had a household slave now. They weren't adopted, they weren't a son or a daughter, but they were the lucky ones because they were taken home, taken someplace, and given some kind of living to do. That's not how God treats us. When he adopts us, at this chosen thing, he looks at us particularly and says, this is my daughter, this is my son. I give him my name. He is in my household. He, is, he or she is in my family. They are heirs with my son and joint heirs with him. 
So they will inherit the kingdom that he is his at the end of all things. He is, this child is loved. This child is accepted. This child is valued. You see, what determines our worth is not who abandons us, but who looks at us and wants us and desires us and picks us up and takes us home. That's who determines who you are. And that's what God has done for you and each one of us here. Adopted us not so that we may be slaves, adopted us so that we may be sons and daughters. Son or daughter. When you are looking at your checkbook, when you're looking at your schedule and your calendar, does it reflect your sonship, your daughtership, your part, being part of God's family? Does it show who you are when you have to go and face this spouse who you're so mad at you could just choke them and you have to love them anyway? Or this child who's so rebellious you could just slap them? And when you face with that kind of reality, how do you respond as a child of God, as an heir and joiner with Christ, as someone who is who's guaranteed a place beside Christ in heaven? And part of the inheritance that will be given to him will be given to you. Your value and worth determine how you make, what you value and what you value determines how you make choices. Adopted as sons. If you look at adoption, uh, very quickly, a person is adopted. There are several things that are corollaries to this. We have already mentioned some, a lot of them. You are loved, you're accepted, you're cared for. No one's going to adopt a son and abandon them. You're cared for, you're chosen and selected, you're a son or a daughter, you're given a name, you belong, you have a belonging, you're not abandoned, you're not a part of some kind of wandering the streets person no one cares about, you're part of God's family, you're part of his household, he's the one who values you, you're, you're valued. You have a position as a son or a daughter, you have a family, others who also are in that family. You have an inheritance, you have a name, you have a future, you have a hope, you have a purpose. Because you're a member of God's family. And it is out of that vast knowledge of who you are that we make decisions on an everyday basis. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Man, I got a long way to go. Join the crowd. Join the crowd. We have a long way to go trying to live up to who we God has said we are. Because we still constantly go back to the old ways, the old ways of thinking about things. I've got to be loved, I've got to be accepted, I've got to be the strongest football player, I've got to be the smartest student, I have to have the, have the best business plan, I have to dress the sharpest, I have to be the most attractive. I, I, <laughs> well, if that's the way you want to live your life, then go on and make your decisions based on that. But when the lions are at the gate, that's not going to serve you very well. This is how God wants you to live. In the light of who you are, make decisions based upon, I don't know how to do that. Sorry. I don't know how to do that. He's kind of laid it out for you. Sermon on the Mount. That's the attitude and the actions of a, of a member of the God's family. 
Go to Romans 12 through 16. 1 through 11 is the basis, the theological foundation of that. Then he says, now here's what you do. Here's how you live on that. Go to Ephesians 4 through 6. 1 through 3 tells us about who we are. And then he goes, okay, now in light of that, here's what you do. Here's how you live. This is just kind of laid out for us all throughout the Word of God. We can go back and look at the Old Testament, look at the history of people who, yes, I'm going to make decisions, I'm going to follow who, uh, uh, be obedient to who God says I am, or I'm going to go my own way. And you can see the history of what happened there. Then you can say, wait a minute, hold it, now how does that help me? Blah, 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 blah. Yo. Let's look real quickly. So it tells us that we are, we are adopted. We are his children. We're his daughters. Uh, in verse 7, in him we have redemption. So that's the second thing I want us to see is the fact that we, have been, we are redeemed. What does that mean? You've been bought with a price. Well, I didn't know I was up for sale. Yes, you are. Because there's, the scripture makes it very plain, you only have two aspects, you only have two realities. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. You're, you're, you're either on your own and you have to find some way to atone for all the sins that you've made against God. Or you're a member of God's household and he's already paid the price for that because you are the redeemed ones. Christ died for you. And you don't have to worry about paying the penalty for that sin. All you have to worry about is, how am I going to glorify God in my redemption? Or you're a slave to sin. You have no other option but to act in opposition to God's will. And you have no ability to atone for the sins that you've made. Well, I can be try to good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all the sins, any of the sins that you've committed against the, the reality of a holy God, and you are to be holy as he is holy, and tell me you can atone for that. Well, you will. Uh, but the, the option there is an eternity in hell, separated from God, to atone for that on your own. But we don't have to worry about that because those of us who know Christ sincerely are the redeemed ones. Think of the value that you have that Christ paid his life for yours. The atoning price reflects the value of the object atoned for. It's not that you barely scrape by. If somebody just grabbed up a few pennies and threw them at the seller and, he, and you were atoned for. It's that, that God saw the value that you have and understood that the cost would be great and paid that cost for you so that those sins are atoned for. You are the redeemed ones. If I am redeemed, that means that I am owned. Yes, you are. You're, you don't own yourself. Not anymore. If you want to own yourself, you go right ahead, but then you've got to atone for all these sins, and you know what that's going to lead to. According to the word of God, it's not really a good ending. I wouldn't do that if I were you. So the only option is to be bought and to be owned by God himself. Because the freedom that you're desiring can only be found when you belong to him. 
Because then you're free from the penalty of sin and you're free to serve him as best you can all the rest of your life. You're owned. Because you really don't have an option here. You're either owned by the world, you're either owned uh, by your sin, or you're owned by God. You know, as, as um, John, Den- uh, John Denver. I had it it's right out of my head. Um, anyway, famous rock star from the 60s um, made the song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Bob Dylan, thank you. When he became a Christian, or when he, we think he became a Christian, that he wrote that you have to serve somebody. And his point was, you don't have an option here. You either serve the Lord or you serve the devil or you serve somebody, but you're going to serve somebody. Make a choice. Who are you going to serve? And that's the same thing here. As, as we have been redeemed, we have said, by accepting Christ's atonement for our sins, we've said that we're going to serve the Lord. Then the question is, how do you make decisions about that? Sermon on the Mount, Ephesians 4 through 6, Romans 12 through 16. That's what he says. Okay, let me show you what this is like. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you live your life. Here's the decision. And you, based, and you make decisions based upon who you are in Christ, which is the redeemed. Not based upon who you were, which is a miserable, smashed sinner. Of course, you still are that. But then you're, but you've been bought. You've, you're out of that now. You don't have to serve sin. You have to serve God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And serving that Lord means your freedom. You're free from the penalty of sin. And you're free to serve him as, as best you can. Make the decisions based upon who you are. You're redeemed, you're owned, you're valued, you're purchased, you're restored as a son or daughter, you're accepted, you're important of high value and worth, you're debt-free in terms of your eternity, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're the object of Christ's atonement. You are the object of Christ's atonement. You specifically, uniquely, purposefully, particularly are the object, the reason he went to the cross for you. Verse 3 and last, I mean um, the last that we, one we have. Um, uh, verse, look, look all the way down, we don't have time to go through the rest. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, have also believed you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which means that you're your position, your value, your identity is secure. It will not change. It will not lessen. It will be as God says it will be. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit so that it's permanent. You are owned. You're God's possession. You're secure. You're safe. You have a certain identity and inheritance because it's been sealed. It's been said in the, in the uh, in Roman days, if you were a slave, then you were branded with the, the brand of the, uh, of the house that you served, that you, were, that you belonged to. And that you wore that brand as, as your identity, and that tells everybody who you are and who you belong to. As you were a Roman soldier, you were tattooed. Remember Gladiator? Maximus had SPQR on his shoulder which is, identified him as a legionnaire in the, in the Roman army. He was tattooed. All Roman soldiers were tattooed according to their rank and those, all those kinds of things. It identifies who you are. You have been sealed. You have been identified. You have been a part of, for, for everyone to see, the body of Christ. 
That is your security. Your identity and certainty is, is for sure. You are God's son or daughter. You are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. You're a member of God's kingdom and his family. You're a member of Christ's body. You are the bride of Christ. You're the object of Christ's affection and his work on this earth. That's who you are. So make decisions based upon who you are, not based upon who you think you are. Let me close with a little illustration, if I can get this in. Very quickly, I talked to a pastor years ago, a different place. Um, nice young man, uh, very astute. He did his uh, devotions uh, in a, a combination Hebrew-Greek Bible in the original languages. Very smart, very knowledgeable. Problem was his kids. He was out of control. He had no earthly idea how to deal with them. He was overwhelmed and he was affecting his wife. His congregation was noticing they were just really hell, you know, they're really brats. The man was really not doing very well in that department. So we had to talk down, we had, he sat down with him and talked to him. Come to find out that his own father was very harsh and cruel and demanding and specific and very borderline abusive in his physical punishment. It never accepted him, it was always critical, very harsh. And he hated his father growing up. Did everything he possibly could to get away from the household. Played sports, played band, all, everything to get him away from the house. And he vowed that when he got married that, his, that he, his kids would love him. So what kind of parent do you think he became? You can see, you can see it, can't you? Very permissive, very low-key, backed way off. He let his wife handle things. The kids very quickly caught on to that and overwhelmed her. And he would, he, uh, sometimes he would get so angry he would burst out. And he would scream and yell around the house and throw things and hit the kids. And then he would, oh my gosh, I'm just like my father. And he would go into this deep depression. And he would weep and wail and ask for forgiveness and take him to get ice cream. The kids are going, this is great. <laughs> We're going to do this again. <laughs> and they did. In spades. It was awful. Why? Now this person, he could quote you Ephesians 1 in the original Greek. He understood the theological and everything I'm telling you, he understood it here. So why couldn't he work it out in his life? Because down here he had not changed. He was still that little boy with that overbearing, horrible father. And that view of himself is what he was projecting onto his own life and onto his own kids. And it was out of that knowledge, that understanding, his own understanding of who he was. I'm unacceptable. I'm unworthy. I cannot get this done. Um, I'm a failure. Uh, I've, therefore, I've got to be liked. If you don't like me, then it destroys me because it exposes who I am, which is nothing. And that was the, the core by which he parented his children. No wonder his kids were aliens. So what do you do? You have to go back and kind of open up, help him open up his life and look at what's going on. And he had to understand the, the identity that he was, the core identity that he was operating on in not only his uh, parenting, but also his, his marriage and in his congregation as well. And it was quite a shock to him. So we spent, once we identified that, then we identified what does God say you are, just like the stuff that we talked about today. This is who you are. So let's contrast who you think you are and who God says you are. We well, yeah, but I feel like this. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It matters who you are. 
Do you think that Ruth and Ariello were not afraid? Do you think that they were not traumatized? Do you think that they were not insecure and, and, and when something goes wrong? They still are to this day. But how do they act? How do they live? What decisions do they make? Based upon what God has said, you are and I am to you. I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will be with you. I can't abandon these people. I've got to stay. You see? How do you feel? Get out of here. Pack your bag. Get the kids. Let's go. Let's leave this place. Someplace that's safer. Maybe that's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's not because God is telling you otherwise. And he's saying, how do you make that decision? Is it based upon this pastor's understanding about who he was? Even though he knew the reality of what, God, what the gospel says, backwards and forwards. It doesn't matter what you know. You want to increase in your knowledge. It matters what you do. It matters how you're living your life. That doesn't determine your salvation. It determines how you make decisions. Knowledge doesn't make decisions. Your understanding of that knowledge and the application of that knowledge to real life is how decisions are made. And if you're making it out of this deficit, this warped view of reality, then your decisions are going to be a, reflect that. Look at his life. It's in a mess. Theologically, sharp as a tack. Could teach at seminaries. His life total mess. Why? Because he's not letting this affect this. And the, the, the core of his decisions came from here. Are you beginning to understand me? I hope so. I hope I'm not just hammering the point over and over and over again. Ad nauseum. What we're going to take a look at next time is what these, this path, what these three things say, this, you're chosen, uh, or you're um, adopted, you're redeemed, and you are secured, you're sealed. We're going to look at what those things say about how we make decisions and how we make decisions out of that. And then if, we, if I have time um, next time or else in another decision, the sermon, we'll look at how that, uh, how that affects your decisions when the lions are at the gate. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we don't know. Sometimes we don't know how to make decisions based upon what Your Word says because we're so used to doing it our own way, and we see the consequences of it, and we see the brokenness of it, and we see the difficulty of it. Yet we continue to persist, as Paul says, "The good that we would do, we do not, and that what we don't want to do, we find that we're constantly doing it." Father, because sometimes we're operating out of those broken views of self. Infuse us with what your, what your word says. As we read it, maybe help us to understand what you're saying about who we are. And help us to understand what the gospel says about how to make decisions based upon that. And let the world come up with their own conclusions. And give us this, so that we may have the strength to stand when times get really, really hard and really difficult. Grant us these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.